Good morning, John. Good afternoon. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Thank you. Hey, this is technology is wonderful. It's wonderful. I, <laughs> it always takes a little, takes a minute or so. It's still pretty new uh, processes to me as well. So I'm always a little hesitant and nervous when I get started. This is the first time I connected. I've heard other people doing it. So I appreciate this chance. Oh, very good. Let me just adjust my camera a little bit. Okay, very good. Well, thank you. As you know, for those that will watch this video on the Molina Leadership Business and Development Solutions page, I'm speaking to John Lively. He's the Oregon State Representative for Springfield, Oregon. What is the full breadth of that geographical representation, John? So essentially, my representation is the city of Springfield. Uh, so each legislative district has about 65,000 citizens. Okay. Uh, and so that's mostly what the city of Springfield is today. So there's just very few pieces of the city of Springfield in the city limits that aren't part of my district, but otherwise that's it. Very good. And for those that haven't had a chance to ever meet you or hear your story, uh, give us a little bit about your history of political and community service here to the city. Oh, uh, sure. So uh, I've lived in Springfield since 1963, graduated from high school, Thurston High School. I was always interested in politics during that time. Uh, so I was involved in student government, involved in student government when I went to the Lane Community College and University of Oregon, worked in campaigns. And so it wasn't, it was just shortly after I graduated from college that I was approached by citizens of Springfield, some citizens to ask me if I'd run for the city council. Mm -hmm. uh, not knowing whether I'd get elected or not, I thought it'd be a fun challenge. So uh, my wife and I embarked on a campaign and lo and behold, I was elected served on the city council and while serving on the city council was encouraged to run for mayor. Very it good. was the same situation, had no idea going in because I was relatively young and certainly unknown in the city of Springfield, whether I get elected or not. But my family and I, a lot of friends just knocked on all the doors in Springfield and was elected mayor. And so served uh, as mayor till 1986. And at that point made a decision, I had young children uh, and the, the 80s were a difficult time in Springfield, yeah. a lot of places, uh, and it, there was a lot of pressure on my family. There was things that were very unpleasant that happened, and I made the choice to get out of elected politics at that time when my kids were young, but stayed involved in the community in a lot of different activities. Uh, everything nonprofit in this community I probably served on or supported at some point during all those years. Oh, very good. Uh, and so then uh, after doing that, and then I worked in economic development for a lot of years where I got to know a lot of people and work with a lot of businesses and that. And so in recent times, uh, when Terry Beyer, who was a state representative at the time, yes, uh, Terry decided to retire and her and Senator Beyer approached me about potentially running, uh, something I'd always wanted to do, but didn't think this was the time in my life that I would do it. Sure. But three tries on their part that convinced me and my wife <laughs> for me to run. Uh, so in 2012, I was elected and I've served ever since, uh, 2013 being my first session. Now, how long were you on the city council as well as mayor? So I was on the city council for four years and I was mayor for six years. And I, so you were a fairly young man. How, what was your age at that time? So I was 29 when I was elected to the city council. And what was your educational background? So I graduated from LCC with an Associates of Arts degree. Then I graduated uh, after serving four years in the military. I came back and graduated from the University of Oregon uh, with a political science and economics degree. Now, what branch of service and what was your military occupational skill? So I was in the Army Security Agency. 
and so I enlisted to do electronic surveillance, but it turns out I'm colorblind, oh. which I knew before I got in, but they didn't think I was, but I was. Uh, so that didn't work so well. <laughs> so I ended up uh, in personnel management and spent my four years in the military uh, working people through starting background investigations, sure. assigning people overseas, doing those kind of things. Sure. Did you get a chance to travel overseas at all? Uh, no, I was actually when I, so I graduated from AIT from Fort Ord in California. Mm -hmm. and I was on orders and I'd gone through all the jungle training to go to Vietnam. Okay. And I was on orders to go to Vietnam. Uh, and the week before I was due to ship out, my orders were changed. There was a temporary job at the Presidio Monterey. They asked if I'd stay temporarily there. That's great. So I did. That's that was great. a hard choice at that point, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I did, and I ended up spending my whole career in and around Fort Ord. Very good. Yeah, I went to one of my leadership schools there at Fort Ord. It was, oh, uh, did you? Yes, in yeah. 1991, I believe. Yeah, I was actually, my assignment was in Virginia, because I was part of the Army Security Agency, and there's nothing out here on the West Coast. So I was signed there with my duty station, me in Fort Ord, and there was a small processing detachment that I worked as part of, and then at the Presidio of Monterey. Very good. So, you know, we're facing a pandemic. Yes. We have some hard, hard uh, changes upon our communities, our city, our county, our state, our country. The uh, Governor Kate Brown just issued, uh, I'm not quite sure what it's, the exact terminology is, but, but similar to a shelter in place order, is that correct? Yeah, but in our case, we call it stay at home, stay healthy. Stay at home, stay healthy. Can you talk to us a little bit about that process? We seem to be uh, responding probably a little bit later than some people would have liked, but how did we, how did we get here and why is this necessary right now? So, uh, as you know, the legislature's out of session. Yes. And so uh, the actions in that, that the, so the governor has been taking actions along since this was first identified, which happened about coincided with when we left uh, in Salem, the session was over. So working with the health authority, with the CDC and all the other people uh, involved with what's going on with the coronavirus, uh, and based on input from hundreds of people, mm -hmm. business community, uh, employees, et cetera, she's been trying to walk a fine line yes. uh, that will help us, what they call bend the curve, meaning that we stop the spread of the virus mm -hmm. uh, long enough that we can get through uh, this but stop the spread enough that we can get through it, but at the same time trying to maintain some opportunities, meaning some business activity in that, because from an economic standpoint, it's a real, nationally, obviously, it's a disaster and it's going to be and is for our state. So each time uh, something has occurred, as more cases are discovered, certainly once we started seeing deaths in Oregon, that she's continued to meet, she's got a cabinet group, a coronavirus response team that she meets with every day. Uh, and they talk about the statistics, what's available or not, what the challenges are, what's happened nationally, what other states are doing. Uh, and between that, then she makes decisions based on all of those things, how we can best address this, and specifically, again, how do we bend the curve? And that's why, so some people have been critical from the fact that we didn't do what some of the other states did and just go through the lockdowns. But what she and other people have learned by looking at those, those haven't worked very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very confusing about, so what is lockdown or not? So she's tried to take a more broad approach, be more specific about that, and relying on Oregonians to uh, do what they're being asked to do, which was stay at home. But I think everybody's aware of what happened on this weekend. 
yes. is flooded the coast. Yes. That's the opposite thing people should have been doing. So that uh, created the, the, for the governor to act and to make it far more specific. So the most recent order she has put out is very specific about who can or cannot leave their home. First, asking everybody that can be home to stay home. Right. Secondly, uh, who can or cannot leave their home and under what circumstances. And then what are the priorities? And obviously the priorities are people's health. Right. So we've got to protect the ability for our health facilities in that, to have the equipment they need and the facilities they need uh, to operate and treat the virus. We've got to have other critical businesses in our state be able to continue to operate. Uh, so the, the attempt of the most recent order then is to distinguish those things so people truly understand. But at the end of the day, what she's just saying, if you can stay home, or even if you don't think you can stay home, you should stay home, because otherwise we're not going to get a handle on this coronavirus. The key thing there is, if you look at what's happened in all the other countries, we're just starting, we're just starting the curve right. in Oregon. And that's what's scary about how, if we can't get a handle on it now, what will happen. So I see there's some legal penalties attached to her executive order. Yes, there are. And some of those are fine. You know, none of us, none of us, including the governor, want to send the police out to try to enforce or to shut people down. That's not anybody's intent. And as you know, mm -hmm. Mark, we don't have enough police to do the job. Right. So the last thing you want to do, but, but in looking at how other states, how this has worked and how it didn't work when she asked people sure. voluntarily to do it they decided they would also have to add some penalties, believing uh, that rarely would it have to be used, but if it has to be used, the, the police, the law officials need the authority in which to do it. Right. So <clears throat> you said she has a cabinet and a, a response team? Yes. Who, who's on that, do you know? So first and most importantly are all of her department heads. So Oregon Health Authority, Department of Human Services, those people that are already providing services, because in many okay. cases they're still providing services. Uh, and then she's got key business people representing the financial institutions, the health institutions, uh, the, uh, the whole area as far as tourism and that. So she's got representatives. Oh, very good. And all those different parts of the business besides that she meets with. Uh, then along with, uh, some the, the contacts to the federal, the CDC and that, those are all part of people that they can talk to about how things are changing. So it's a wide group of people that provide her advice and not obviously just like anything else, not all of them agree. Right. She has to weigh all of that. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> as the governor, you know, based on her best judgment and what she's heard, what best actions to take. Well, I think it's important that uh, people understand uh, that she does have a cabinet surrounding her. She does have, uh, experts surrounding her. She does have diverse representation regarding the impacts of community, tourism, health, and that it's, it is a complex. Very, very complex. And she's done a series, continues to do a series of phone conferences like she did, like she did one uh, yesterday, uh, multiple ones yesterday, where she call, allows all the elected officials in the state, whether they be county commissioners, city uh, mayors, us elected officials, she does a call and lets us ask questions. And, Very input. and, and there's all the other ways to provide input, but she also has been doing that too. And specifically before she issued her last recent order. So she's doing a great job, I believe, of reaching out to as many as she can reach out to to hear about what may or may not be going on. Oh, very good. Let's talk real quick. I have a, a question. What do you know is our suspected hospital capacity in the state how can how 
are we prepared to effectively absorb this and mitigate it? No, and I, that, that's, there's an ongoing reports that come from the Oregon Health Authority. So they've been working with all the hospitals in the state. So there's a couple issues. One, uh, again, especially if it ramps up too quick, there isn't enough hospital capacity. So that's why the governor authorized the 250 beds at the Oregon Fairgrounds. That's why they're doing as much as they can. And I think you've heard that nationally, that they're trying to create more capacity uh, for beds. And in many cases, those beds would be used for people currently in the hospitals and that, that don't need intensive care because the hospital facilities is really the ones that can deal most recently. So there's an ongoing effort currently to do that. Also, they're looking for other facilities around the state that they can, just like they've done in Washington and places where they can create space for ill people in that, but not the critically ill. So they'll free up more space in the hospitals for coronavirus. The biggest challenge is rural Oregon. Yes. Very little capacity out there. Most hospitals have relatively few places for seriously ill people. So that goes back to the importance to keep the spread, if we can, from being too severe of that. But there's as much at this point, we've, we've identified pretty much what would have to be, but we're way short of the number of rooms, ultimately, if the thing reaches the level that some projections say it would. Way short of that. And certainly, as you know, there's just this whole issue as far as the PPE, protective personal protective equipment, there yes. just isn't enough. The good news is more people are, have, are volunteering to give if they've got it in their businesses and that, so that's helping, but that's still a critical shortage. So depending on how fast this would accelerate, that could be a real problem. So regarding PPE, has a statewide solicitation gone out or been expressed to distributors of any kind or manufacturers of any kind? It's yes, it's been a request around, and I can tell you the the re early response has been pretty incredible. Not nearly what you need, but a lot of places that have them, whether it be businesses that use them, uh, other you know offices that have them on standby. I mean, everybody that does have some have, are making them available for this pool. So the pool then knows that we know what the supply is can be distributed to the places that's more needed, but it's still certainly not enough of what if the if the coronavirus outbreak were to reach the level they're doing. But remember, we're trying to bend the curve down yes. so it doesn't reach that. I, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But that's given us some time uh, to gather that. But we really need a lot more supplies in there is. John, do you know if the federal government and their support of states regarding response, is there a contingency or a priority of distribution regarding PPE or otherwise or ventilators, whatever might be needed, respirators? You know, I don't know for sure. I assume there has to be, because if we look at what's happening across our nation in some of the real trouble spots, like New York City now, yes. where it's just taken off. So I assume, given that they're, they're still behind nationwide on having the protection equipment, that there is a priority as it becomes available. It would go to those regions in that first. And in fact, I heard a conversation yesterday before, they talked about certain regions of the United States yet that aren't really impacted. Right. There are some cases, but the risk is not nearly so high. So I assume by having that conversation, they were indicating that there is a priority while there's still a shortage of where those would be shipped first. Very good. Now, you mentioned a 250-bed facility at Lane County Fairgrounds. Is that the Oregon State Fairgrounds? Excuse I'm sorry, me. the Oregon State Fairgrounds. Who would construct that? Who would manage that? Who would oversee that? So it's currently being constructed by the National Guard. So uh, as part of our emergency plan in this state, so we have an emergency plan in case of the earthquake or something were to happen. So we already had uh, supplies for that hospital set stored. 
to okay. be able to do it. So what the governor's authorized is those that were already set aside. So the beds and those kind of supplies were there. So they're currently working with other volunteers, medical profession, have to get the equipment set up in the big building there at the fairgrounds so it's ready to go. The issue of staffing is a little more complicated because in some yeah. cases, you know, the hospitals aren't overstaffed as it is. Right. So part of that will go back to the, the whole group of hospitals across the strait are working with the governor about the allocation of resources of people in that. So depending on, so we'll go back and say if the real outbreak occurs up north more than it does someplace else and they need more there, we can essentially move uh, personnel, hospital personnel from one place to the other to try to cover some of those. But they've also waived requirements for people coming in to work about licensing, so recognize those licenses, all of those things that would normally hold it up a while have all been waived, they still have to meet the requirements. But so they could come in from other areas. So we go back to some regions of the United States that aren't having nearly so much of an outbreak. Nurses in that from those regions, technicians, sure. eventually come out and also help. So there's, they're working on those things, but there's no immediate uh, solution to all of it. Do you know if there's anything being discussed or being considered at the local county level here where we live in Lane County for it? We have Riverbend, mm -hmm. we have Mackenzie Willamette, if we hit maximum capacity and overflow in those two facilities, do you know of any contingency planning currently that we that is being taken into consideration? I don't know one, though I know they're working. So I know the local health, well, you know, being coordinated primarily through Lane County Health, since the counties are really the health, the local health providers. So I know there is a coordination taking place there. So we know where those are at. And that's partly what's driven, as you know. So the hospitals are setting up uh, tents and or other facilities outside to keep people out of the hospitals, sure. screening and things, the same way of talking about how we get the, the testing done. So there is a lot of coordination going on uh, to do that, but I don't know currently if there's plans in place, if we were to reach that capacity here yet. Though uh, I also know, I've heard some conversations going on about identifying some potential other facilities in Lane County if we get to that point, but goes back to the same issue. Where would we get the beds and all the other supplies? So all of that's still being discussed, but I'm not aware currently of plans in place to address it right now. So for those that are, that are gonna see this video later today and over the next several days, not, all, not everyone understands this separation of power, so to speak. You've got the government, uh, you got, I'm sorry, you have the governor making her executive orders. Now in our conversation currently, we've kind of transitioned to Riverbend, Mackenzie Willamette, as well as county response. If someone doesn't really understand the separation of authority, the separation of power services, and the economic infrastructure of each entity, what, what would you say to these, to these people? Well, first and foremost, the governor's executive orders apply to everybody. Right. So they apply to the hospitals, all the businesses. So at the forefront, that's where it starts. So she is uh, in charge, and that means public or private. So all of these orders do. So people can have comfort from my standpoint in knowing that there is somebody, a group of somebody, mm -hmm. of people that are looking at it from that standpoint. And then it, then it folds downhill from there because there still are responsibilities at the local levels. As you know, in the city of Springfield, Eugene, Lane County have been doing some things already especially to help small business in that. So they have the authority, but all of that authority still has to be within the guidelines, the executive orders of the governor. So it has to be consistent. So the social distancing. So all the local jurisdictions in that have to comply with social distancing regardless, because that's, it starts at the governor level. And obviously the governor has some things she has to comply with from the federal 
level. Yes. Uh, so that's how the system works. But uh, in most cases, it's the states. But there's a lot of latitude within that for them to do. But everybody, I, I'm comfortable in this state that we're all aligned uh, from a standpoint of respecting what the governor has to do and is doing and making sure we're complying, trying to comply with that. And feeding the information back through the health authority, through the county health, who sends it to the health authority. So people are being kept informed. Doesn't mean at times something might not happen locally. That would seem a contradiction. Uh, but that won't be because people are deliberately doing it. That's still because there's so much happening so quick. It's just hard to keep it all coordinated. So county commissioners mm -hmm. manage the county and they'll make those decisions that are uh, service oriented and supportive of these executive orders to help the citizens of the county. That's correct. Local mayors and city councilors will also enact, can enact if they choose to, policies and services that are in support of the people within their jurisdictional mm -hmm. boundaries that, that work and co coincide with county decisions as well as state decisions. So people can expect to see different uh, declarations potentially, correct, from the different right. levels. And that happened this weekend on the coast. So given what happened with people rushing to the coast, there were some cities on the coast, Warrington being one of those, where they took emergency action and shut it down. Oh, so right. Closed the, the motels and things and told people to leave. Okay. Uh, now, but that's consistent with what the governor has said from social distancing, stay at home. So that was all consistent. So while they had the authority to do that, they did that and in support of what had already been said, because they said, you, you know, people just aren't following the orders. Sure. So that, while they did it on their own, and some other cities are doing some of those things now, as I think people know Portland's still talking about even doing more, given the mm -hmm. population there and how close they live together. But that'll all still be in guides to stay home, stay healthy, social distancing, all those same things the governor's already, already put out. Very good. So, John, what do you know, or can you elaborate a little bit on this um, no eviction policy or people get behind in their rent disgrace period can you elaborate i think for most of us we're all a little confused and don't understand the specifics of it well first the governor's issue again another executive order that says people can't be evicted during this time and so what that literally means even if they get behind on the rent and that the owners of the properties can't evict them but that's not by itself that certainly takes care of the renters in the short time for their rent. Now, you and I know they may have, they're not working. Right. And if they can't get unemployment or even if they get unemployment, they're still going to have problems probably in some other areas being able to afford to do that, but that takes care of it. But the problem with that, one of the real problems of that is so many of the people that own these properties are small landlords. Yes. So if the small landlord's not collecting the rent, well, what about their mortgages? What about utility? Yes. It's, it's very complex. So that's partly, so we have a joint, a committee on coronavirus uh, response for the state, which is legislature, senators. So they're meeting currently to try to talk about how we address some of those things. So okay. it's one thing to say you can't evict. Right. renters and that can't be evicted. But it's another thing to say how long this might last. And if it does, how do we make sure that the landlords don't lose their properties? Right or other things. At the same time, you know, the utility companies have said they won't shut off utilities. So there are a lot of things going on. So even if they don't lose them, though, uh, the other part of that problem comes, so how do you pay back? So you find some way to suspend it. Sure. <laughs> well, still do at some point. Sure. It's and if a person's been out of work for months, say, who would it ever catch up? So there's just, it's very complex, but there's people working to try to figure out how uh, to do that. But the goal with the no eviction notice is just so many people are renters and they 
you know, live from month to month, that's what their paychecks are, is to keep them in their homes uh, until we can get through this and figure out. But there's the other pieces is how do we support those that own the, own the apartment buildings in that too. So. Well, that, that's good. It's, here, it's good to hear because I hear from many landlords, we know several whose tenants cannot make their payments already. And yeah. they're concerned, well, I have loans on this, these properties. What about us? Is it just about the tenants? What about us property owners, landlords? Are we just going to be, are we going to lose everything? Is it, is it now become our responsibility just to accept whatever the fallout is? And that, that mark is going to be across the board for small businesses. Sure. So they're in that position, you know, restaurants where we've told them they can't have people come in and sit down, they can take out. Well, the, the, the decrease in their income is substantial and they still have rent payments. They still have all those other things. So across the board, in most all businesses, that's going to be an issue. But the reality is uh, they're not all going to survive. Yes. Regardless of what we do at the state, what they do at the federal government, there's only so much can be done. Right. Some of them uh, were marginal. Our goal would be to help as many as we can. But I'm just going to go back to what I said earlier. The key is going to be when we get through this, however long that takes, then what's the ability to get to help them both survive and repay if their loans Whatever the condition of that is, all that money that's in the system either has to be repaid or covered for. The right. utility has to have its money to keep operating. Yes. Uh, so from my standpoint, that's going to be the problem. But it's going to be frustrating uh, for all of us to see some of very fine small businesses and people that just aren't going to be able to make it through this. Well, I remember when the housing market crash of 2008 crippled us, uh, not just nationally, but locally. And you know, my wife was in her second year of law school when I lost my job. And as you remember, the six largest employers all closed and that yeah. led to the <clears throat> contracting community hemorrhaging as well. And, you know, we lived through that very difficult time and it was very terrifying. And we ended up, our house went and finally went into short sale that was finalized the morning it went to auction. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So we remember well. And, you know, I know that it's scary and it's terrifying for all kinds of people, but there is no way, there is no logical, regardless of how comprehensive and attentive leaders are in, endeavoring to be, at some point, something does have to give, correct? That's right. No, that's true. And I, let me go back to reinforce. That's why the message is going to continue to be reinforced, stay at home. The quicker, the quicker we can get through this period where the risk is so high, yes. so businesses can restart, so we can people can get back to work, the sooner the we're gonna diminish first the amount of harm done up front, but the sooner the system can start working again. But you know, I who knows how long that's gonna take. But the only thing we know in the short term is people to stay away from each other so we don't keep spreading this coronavirus. And the other thing we all know is it's far more, there's more people out there have it than we ever know because we haven't tested enough. Young people have it. What we're learning is many people have it and have no symptoms. Right. So that's the other reason to social distance and to stay away is to prevent that. But the sooner we can get it, the curve bent and know that the thing is hopefully done for this year, then the sooner we can get back to work and people get to going. But it's going to take a while even when that happens. Sure. For the supply chain, uh, for those companies to get restarted, all you know, people start buying again. Because if you think about it, so we're an economy driven by consumers. Yes. Who is out of work now but the consumer? Yes. 
So until the consumers, the average citizen of Springfield in the state can get stable, get back to work, start paying their bills, their back bills in that, you know, the markets are going to continue to be in a, in a turmoil. Mm -hmm. Just reasonable. So it's, it's going to be quite a process to get back out, but we just got to get it slowed down. You know, I'm seeing that um, the amount of people applying for unemployment benefits and uh, the obviously the system's overloaded, like all the loan processes right now. Yep. And they're having to wait multiple, um, come back at this time, come back at this time to the process online and it's still hemorrhaging. Is there anything that can be done about that? Not in the short term. I just have people just need to be persistent and get signed up. Uh, I think the good news is they're, they're waiving the week's waiting period and stuff. So from that standpoint, if they can get into the system, then it, they'll eventually get paid in that. <clears throat> but the, the only thing that could be done, first, the, the technology is overwhelmed. Yes. It was never designed to take this much. And secondly, we have a limited number of employees that work in those places. Yes. So you can't hire people at this point, or you can't put them in those positions even if you hire them. So the capacity is just what the capacity is. And so it's just going to be important for people, as frustrating as it is, to get themselves registered mm -hmm. so that then they can start getting. You know, that's one of the things the federal government has put more money into the unemployment system. The state will be doing that. So there'll be money there to make sure, regardless of the number of claims. From my standpoint, one of the biggest uh, problems, though, with that whole system is those that don't qualify for unemployment. Right. People work part time. I mean, if you go through the scenarios and under the law, they don't qualify, but they're just as much in need. Yes. How we address, uh, you know, in some cases that's farm workers, it's all kinds of people. Right. And so how we address in the near term, those people too, with the system, I know the state's looking at it and the feds are, but that's another big issue. So those that don't even qualify that have a huge need because of their part-time work, it's probably. Right. So when I remember when the economy crashed in 2008, the state of Oregon extended employment benefits, I believe, what, four years? I think that's correct. And do you know if there's any, are there discussions around that type of extension currently? Not currently, but obviously if this thing, the whole uh, threat extends too long, there would be those kind of conversations, but not currently. And I don't, it's been a long time since I've been too active with that system. I'm not sure what they're allowed now under the system, how many months, but they have a certain amount of months they're already allowed. Yeah. So the goal right now is to get people into it. And if you listen to what all the goals are as far as this virus, getting the curve down, yes. by June or July, in theory, will be that. And, and that's within the time frame that people would be eligible for unemployment benefits anyway. But if something, if the worst case were to happen, would be extended, there's no doubt in my mind we would extend those benefits. We couldn't cut people off from them. So why is it important if we had to do that as a state if our legislatures our senators our elected officials had to extend those benefits to that length of time why is that so important uh, well it's primarily important because in many people's case in many cases of people out there and the majority of people working class people yes uh, the amount of income they make in that. I mean, they don't have savings in many cases. They don't have a cushion. And so why that's important, while it still doesn't make up for what they were earned, in many cases it provides enough that along with the other services and things that are available where they'll extend what they have to pay for utilities and that, it provides enough that they, as a family, that they can take care of their family, buy food, and do those things they have to do to get through that time. Because without it, there isn't any real other things that's available for those people to do. 
And from my standpoint, it's important because they've earned that. They've earned their unemployment. And so it's not like it's a handout. It's not a handout. They've earned it because they work for it. And that. so it's still part of, they can feel good as an individual. They were working right. one way or the other. And so this is money they earned and they shouldn't be able to receive during that time. So from that standpoint, but it's just critical for people to buy their food, do the things they have to do when, quote, uh, staying at home. How would our, this might be a bigger question, a big, big question or too big of a question, but how would our state budget, how's it doing? How's our state, uh, <clears throat> do we, what's our operational fund like? How are we, how are we going to respond to all of this? So there's a couple things. Uh, one, the good news is we had, up until now, we had record years of revenues, the last biennium, which allowed the state to both make new investments, but also to build our reserves. So the reserves in the state of Oregon, uh, in comparison to a lot of other states, we used to be at the bottom. Now mm -hmm. we're one of the top 10 states or so as reserves, as far as the amount of money we have set aside in case of recessions of that, as a proportion of our budget. So the good news during the last Biennium, we were able to do that. Uh, the secondly, even with that, uh, we had revenue still exceeded uh, what our expectations were. So we had, besides our reserves, we had more than a billion dollars. During the short session, we were looking at allocating other things. We didn't get that allocated because we left. So those funds are also available. So from a standpoint of the near term, the state has quite a few funds. Certainly not all they would want. So the money, the billion dollars that was left over, Yes. It's been allocated now by the legislature, and we're talking about that's what the special special committee's doing, talking about how we allocate those and get them to the places that would help the most. The reserves, so the rainy day fund, and that takes action by three-fifths of the legislature. There's certain conditions under which those can be used, uh, but they could be uh, used, and that's what they're there to do, but we'd have, the legislature ha would have to meet to do that. Mm -hmm. But here's, from my standpoint, here's the caution with that. We don't know how long this is going to last. Right. And we know it's going to have a devastating effect on revenues in, in the future biennium. So the caution would be, while we have all that money sitting there now, and there will be a lot of pressure to spend a lot of it. Sure. Uh, if we spend a lot of it and revenues don't bounce back in the near term, and they probably won't, we could be in worse shape than in another, yes. another year by having spent those reserves. So there's going to have to be a balance. Our next uh, revenue projection will be made. That's when we'll start seeing what this is really impacting. But there's no question, since we're an income tax state and the majority of people are out of work, mm -hmm. what's going to happen to the income tax, our revenues are going to fall substantially. So we've just got to be careful with those reserves while we have substantial reserves that we plan to how they're going to get us through potentially the next several years Yes. if revenues don't bounce back as fast as we would hope they would. I think that's a critical part of this conversation that uh, – we don't always understand uh, people at my level or citizens or those just the general population. Well, you go, to, you go to Salem, it's this big, beautiful building. So all of you guys must be making a ton of money. <laughs> That's and, right. And you have all these benefits and we don't understand really how critical. When I was down in South Texas, the state legislator, uh, they talked about they had investments in minerals oil, different things that were, they were drawing revenue from for the state, and they had a 50-year reserve of their, from their investments. Sure. What does Oregon have? Where are we investing to get our reserves from or potential income return from? 
So uh, the state treasurer who um, manages all the state's investments, and that includes the investments for PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System. So the state treasurer, along with his team and, and a team of advisors, manage all the state's uh, savings and that. And they're, they're, they're primarily a lot of different instruments. And so they try to spread those out to minimize the risk. So if one goes up, um, sure. and so on. So they historically have done a pretty good job. And we've had a pretty good return on our uh, investments. But when a situation like this happens so quickly, and as you know, uh, the market in the yeah. last two, months, two weeks has just been devastating. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't, you can't react quick enough in those right. situations. Where would you react to? And so let's talk about PERS for a second. So it devastated PERS. PERS is 65 to 70% investments. That's what's in that account. And when the market crashes, like the market has, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars of new deficit in the PERS account overnight. Right. And so there's no way, there's not something else out there that you could move too fast enough, even you could, that can make that up in that short term. You can only hope that the long term, other investments in that work that you can take other actions and that so that's the same thing with some of the other states investments that we have uh, those savings that we have in our mm -hmm. accounts they earn pretty well during times but when the economic market turns down like so fast that there isn't any immediate thing you can do to keep from your earnings diminishing pretty fast and so how long that lasts again goes back to how, how big the crisis will be from an economic standpoint now here's an example. So uh, we in the legislature instituted the business activity tax to raise $2 billion to support K through 12 education during the last session. Yes. $2 billion. A lot of people are asking us to delay implementation for good reason to understand right. the impact. But in the meantime, the schools, as they were ordered to do, started investing those funds to be ready to go, expanding classrooms, the preschools and so they were already investing those funds so if we were to delay that implementation or if the revenues from it isn't enough we're going to have a hole in our k-12 budget yes could be very large goes back to those reserves that's what the type of thing those reserves are there to do so we've got to be careful where we spend those because that could be one of the examples uh, even if we don't suspend the tax the revenues may be substantially down depending on the condition businesses are in so can you talk about what that might look like suspending the tax if if it becomes absolutely necessary well, you know, i i don't serve on the revenue committee the only thing i could think of is rather than suspending it we would delay implementation so i as a one of the persons that voted for tax be very hesitant about suspending it i you know if indeed there if somebody could show us that that delaying the implementation goes back to how what how would you choose where that date's going to be? Because depending on how long it takes businesses to recover from this yes. whole coronavirus. Uh, so I'm not sure how that decision made. To me, that's the only way you could do it was the, to move out the implementation date because it was January of this year, 2020. Yes. So move it out to January 2021 to July. I'm not sure. I know they're having those conversations. But that all has to be done in conjunction with, again, the reserves we have, our other revenues, how they're following. Uh, what we truly think the impact is on businesses you know another option there i've heard discussed is having a hardship where certain businesses could claim a hardship because remember this is applies to businesses a million dollars and up yes so some people think a million dollars is a lot that's not a very big business in many right and so there could be examples of there you could raise that threshold 
the $2 million, $2.5 million. Right? There's all kinds of options there, but the, all of that takes action by the, the legislature. Okay. Currently, we don't even have a way to meet as a legislature and keep the social distancing, comply with what the governor has suggested. Right. Uh, so it's very complex. Sure. Well, it's good to hear regarding um, the terminology of suspend the tax or delay implementation, because I'm thinking of how, how would small businesses uh, facilitate their portion of this in this, what is becoming an economic uh, hemorrhaging? How, how, how does anyone really, how do we survive this? Not oh. just at the state level, but just all levels. Absolutely. And remember, the business activity tax is based not on profits, but just based on the activity, the sales of businesses. So different than income tax, the income tax they pay, they pay on their profits that they made or the income, net income. That's not what the business activity tax is. So it has a different thing. If, if they, all they were paying was income tax like we pay on our net income, then mm -hmm. as their income goes down or diminishes, you wouldn't have a tax, but that's not what the business, so that's another reason why they've got to look carefully at what it does in the near term, because it's really, most businesses' activities are going down. So even if they could afford to pay it, the amount we projected coming in from it could be substantially less. Okay, thank you for that. Um, let's talk a little bit regarding utilities. Is the governor's office having conversations with local utilities in the state? So, yeah, so the governor's office, both so there's organizations that represent the, so there's the publicly owned utilities like sub, mm -hmm. the publicly owned utilities. Then there's the private utilities like PG and Portland and Pacific uh, Power. Uh, so she's in conversation with all of us. And then you have the public utility commission, which oversees the utilities. And so all of those are in communication with the governor and that about actions being taken. And in most cases, they were already voluntarily agreeing to uh, suspend turning off people if they can't pay the bills. That was already happening long before the governor had to take any kind of action. And all she did in many cases was put it statewide to do that. But most of the utilities, because they're serving local customers, sure. already recognized the position their customers were getting in. So agreed to uh, not turn people off during that time, agreed to extend the payment time. But I'm gonna go back to all of those things are just delaying the money that's needed to yeah utilities and so at some point the system has got to cut it cut up so it means if you're in a position that you can't pay your till the whole bill or even any of the bill for the next couple three months you still owe that money right and so that's where to me it's nice that we can do it and they should do it like they're doing it but how are people going to be in the position when they finally get back to work and how soon what are the time frame in which they have to repay that that's even going to be the bigger issue so they can't repay it instantly so will they have a year? What will happen? I don't know. So providing services and paying for services, they're in equal demand, an equal requirement. It's, it's, it costs the organization, whether it's sub or PG&E, just like it costs the consumer. That's right. They have, they have ongoing costs too. Systems, yeah. you know, that they have to, and so all of these things have to be accounted for in that. And I, again, I appreciate, really appreciate the efforts they've done. They won't turn people off. They'll do all of those wonderful things. But at the end of the day, that's income they're foregoing that are part of their budgets that are necessary to maintain long-term services to our community. So. so let's talk a little bit about mortgages. What's going on in the state regarding mortgages? So my understanding is some of the mortgage companies have already agreed to delay people's mortgage payments to waive the interest. So there's several different things. What Currently, though, I don't know that there's anything formal across the state. What 
people need to make sure they do is call their mortgage holders and talk to them directly because most of them agreed they understand this is unusual, uh, that they'll take provisions uh, to delay payments, to delay interest, but we just have to remember that it'll have to be paid at some point, but it'll keep people in a safe place now so do, we don't have what happened in 2008 with all the homes being foreclosed on and people losing their homes. That's nobody's intent. Uh, but there's certainly people, again, that have just lost their jobs and have no ability to pay their mortgage. So at this point, the mortgage institutions seem to be pretty willing to work with those people. All of that's still going to depend on how long this lasts and how long they can sustain, because they have to—they have payments they have to make on the interest, the money they borrowed from other places. Right, right. Yeah. So all of that has to work somehow. My understanding is, and I heard a report from the Federal Reserve, that the banks are in much better shape than they were in 2008 in that. So they have cash reserves in that enough there to help get through this for a while versus in 2008 they didn't have those reserves in that so they were in a much different position. John do you know if there's any part of our local or state economy that is that has strength right now that's not under an immediate threat? Um, I you know I don't know given that our economy is linked to overseas mm -hmm. <laughs> you know in Oregon so much of our economy is, is linked to exports Yes. Yeah, so and that's, you know, the exports are all threatened because of what are going in other countries and that in some cases you can't even export. You can't get containers to ship products out because of what happened in China. So certainly that portion, we're, we're at a different part of the season. So the good news is it isn't the height of the exporting season. That's so from agriculture, wood products. But I don't think there's any particular section of our economy uh, that isn't threatened to some extent because those Largest businesses, of course, depend on selling product out of the state. Right. And if they're selling the product to any other states than that, the other states are in the same condition in many cases we are, or certainly the federal government. Uh, I mean, the, the uh, yeah, the federal government and or other countries. And so all of this is tied together. So the longer it uh, continues, both internationally and nationally, the bigger threat it is to our whole economy. Even the big businesses that the products and that that they're making, because at some point if they don't have the market for the products, they got to quit making them. Yes. And so I think that's going to that goes back to how long this takes to finally settle down. As you know, some of them, you know, the automobile manufacturers have shut down. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, they've got cars all over the place already. So the last mm -hmm. thing they need to be putting more cars. We don't have automobile manufacturers here, but we have other types of manufacturers that'll be in the same position probably. Sure. They can only. Because all the products they produce, they have to spend money to produce. If they don't have money coming back in, producing this product. So it goes back to the, the sooner we can slow the curve down, the better off we'll be. So do you know those that are, is there any conversation at the state level regarding those that have private health insurance? Mm -hmm. Now they're losing their jobs. They can't afford the premiums. <clears throat> what are we going to do? I haven't heard, doesn't mean there aren't, I haven't heard of conversations at the state level. There are some at the federal level. Part of what they're negotiating in uh, some of the response to this is funds and able to help to address that. When I don't know whether that means buying insurance for people or how that would actually work. Uh, but I haven't heard anything at the state level other than uh, there were some provisions to allow more people to sign up for Medicaid and that to reopen those periods and that to try to get people into those ultimately that do it. Uh, but otherwise, I'm not sure. I, I believe all of those things would probably be talked about someplace, but we're still, whether people know it or not, we're still early in this process. Sure, sure. I'm being able to do it. But certainly people are uh, talking about those that have not. But 
even before this occurred, uh, you know, we were fortunate in Oregon that we had 90 some percent of our people that had insurance. Didn't mean they could afford to use the insurance. But certainly in a case like this where it could be catastrophic, there would be coverage for those people. So those that are not uh, are in the same position they were before. And the hospitals will not refuse to take care of those people. All that does, if they, and they shouldn't refuse to take care of them, but they don't. They haven't historically. But that adds to the cost of the system overall. So those that have insurance have to pay more. Sure. Uh, so it's a vicious circle, but I, you know, in the near term, we were covered pretty well in this state. I think we still are pretty well, but I'm sure there's other conversations going about how you help medical facilities cover those costs that don't, that people don't have insurance in that, so that we don't put all the burden there. Just a side question or a side thought, your opinion. Would the Oregon Health Plan be a vi viable option for all the citizens of Oregon? Uh, some people have advocated and argued that when it was first implemented, uh, Governor Kitzkopper at that time, kind of the long-term visions, it, it could be and would be. I think that's still a possibility. Uh, from my standpoint, the key goes back to though how broad, you know, how broad is the coverage? Because the Oregon Health Plan has some limitations on what people are covered for. And so that's part of how you hold the cost down. Sure. So whether that is a, a good model for everybody or not, I'm not sure. Cost is always going to be something that drives it, but it's a basic. So what we've done with the Medicaid and Oregon Health Plan are, are examples of things the state could do statewide potentially uh, and make sure everybody has availability to it. But certainly during these times, none of that's going to occur. So you, You've given me a lot of those who are listening, you've given a lot of very good information today, and I'm hopeful, and there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of fear, and people are really concerned about tomorrow or the culmination or the collective tomorrows. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like, based on your information today, that as a state goes, functionally, as a state goes financially, as the state of Oregon goes structurally, we're sound. I mean, we're, meaning we are here to, meaning our leadership, when I say we, they are ready, they are prepared, they are planning, they are processing, they are moving forward to the best of their ability with what we have to be as effective, uh, short and long term as possible. It sounds like the government, the state government, as well as our county government and municipal governments, they're all being very thoughtful and very intentional right now. I, I believe that's the case and I believe it will continue to be. It doesn't diminish the fact that a lot of people are going to be hurt. Yes. It, it's just the fact that we can't, you know, we can't respond to everything. But I think overall, uh, we'll help minimize it and help as many as we can be helped. The key goes back to how long it lasts because it certainly does have a, it's threatening the longer term economic stability in this state and that the longer it lasts in that. But I think given actions over the last several years and getting the reserves we have in the places and doing some of the other programs in place has really helped position our state to do something better. But uh, if that curve gets too steep and our hospitals are overwhelmed, we're gonna have the same problem a lot of other places have seen because there's just so much we can do, especially in the short term. In your opinion, based on what you know, based on what we're facing right now, what can we as the citizens of Oregon, your constituents of the state, what can we reasonably expect when this is all said and done of where we're at right now moving forward? Uh, well, 
I wish I could, I wish I had a crystal ball to know, but I think first, uh, what we can expect is it's going to be a slower climb out than any of us want. Uh, I personally, given what we went through in 2008 and the types of businesses we have in the state, understand the types of business we have in the state, the state is full of small businesses. Yes. That is what employs the people in that. And they're the ones going to be the most devastated in what this is happening, their chances to hold on. So from my standpoint, so the climb out is gonna be slower than any of us would want in the state from a standpoint, there's gonna be people continue and the demands for services, which are reasonable demands to help people during that time are going to put a real burden on state budgets and local budgets. Uh, as you know, the cities have pledged some money for some loans for small business. They're, everybody's working to try to do this, yeah. but there's only so much funds there. So I'm concerned that the lift out is gonna take us longer than people, than we want to, and then that means suffering a lot of people are going to be. It's the key thing from my standpoint is people helping each other stay home for heaven's sakes. I think that's important. Uh, but some of the things they've talked about, so our small businesses that are, can only do takeout now. So those people that can afford to order something once in a while and go take it out, that'll help. You know, they don't have employees in many cases in that, but any little income will yeah. help some of those businesses survive. And if they can survive another month, it's more likely then as things turn around that they'll be here when we go back. So to me, it's really everybody helping to take care of everybody else, mm -hmm. recognizing uh, the best intentions, it's gonna be a tough climb back on this thing. So as our state representative, if anyone in Springfield wanted to reach out to you, how could they make contact with you? So the best way is to uh, email at my uh, rep, so it's rep.johnlively uh, at oregongov.com. Oh, they changed my email address, isn't that? Uh, no, so it's, sorry, I've had three emails since I've been in Salem. So it's uh, rep.johnlively at oregonlegislature.gov. So that's and if, they, the if they went to the website, they could find you there they as well. find that, or they can call my state office, so we're not allowed in the Capitol, but I have uh, staff, Andrew Hickerson, we keep up with the phone calls and that, and so they could call the state office, which is 503-986-1412. Are the two best ways to get, and we check those. I check my email multiple times a day. We check the phone and that so we can get back to people. Uh, so those in the near term are the best ways in which to be able to reach me. Very good. And John, if, if you could say anything encouraging to the, your constituents, what are some of your final thoughts that you'd like to share with them? Well, first, uh, to my constituents, I'll, I'll say uh, I think Springfield in particular, and that's not to brag us over anybody else, but I, I live here, recreate here and so on. I think they've done a phenomenal job of responding. I think the businesses quickly responded when asked to close and do the things they've done. If I go around town, I see what they've done. I see people helping. I see more people uh, here volunteering in neighborhoods to go get people groceries and that. So first, I feel very positive about people taking it seriously and about our community, people trying to help each other, and about the business community coming together to try to help businesses and to be proactive doing those things. So first and foremost, uh, I, you know, from Springfield's standpoint, doesn't mean there isn't hurt going on, but I think our community re has recognized how serious this is and is trying to uh, do its, its share. Uh, secondly, I think the local governments, along with the state governments, are listening, are doing the everything they can do to possibly try to address what the challenges are. And I think that will, reverse how tough it is, will minimize, will yes. minimize uh, the impacts on people and certainly improve the aspects when we come back out of this. 
to do it. But, you know, from my standpoint, you've got to believe that we're, we're in it together. Mm -hmm. And if we do what we're being asked to do, uh, I think we'll all be the better for it at the end and certainly feel better for what we've been able to help each other. But I'm encouraged at the local level, especially, but at the state level too, that, uh, you know, we've got the right pieces in place. To, I don't want to pick on somebody else's poor, but if you look at the conditions of people live in the large cities in that versus how we live here in Oregon, we yeah. just have some assets and things that help make us to get through situations like this. We only have 4 million people in our whole state right? versus millions in communities have in the other places. So we should be thankful for the type of state we are, who lives here and what we're doing and knowing that uh, we're positioned to come through this. Very good. So just to get, I want to thank you, John, for those that are, will see this. This is John Lively, state representative uh, for Springfield, Oregon. I want to thank you for your time, sir. I want to thank you for your willingness to address some of the questions that I had and expand on some of the areas uh, that we need to know as citizens, as not only as your constituents, but as citizens of the state of Oregon, that the information you gave today, I believe, will help all of us move forward. And I also believe sincerely that you, you expanded in such a way that I think a lot of people, their anger about what's happening is going to be settled a bit and that there is a lot of thoughtful conversation, thoughtful process, uh, intentional process, what's going on behind the scenes for all of our good. And that I believe that the municipal, the city level, the county level and the state are working well together on our behalf. And we should, we need to be very grateful for that. And I thank you for your time. I agree then. Thanks for doing this, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you have a good day, sir. And I'll, I'll be in touch again. You bet. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye.